HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deeper understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from our studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli and supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, so I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guests today are uh, David Tojano and uh, TJ Provenzano, uh, who are the co-owners of Mayanoki, a charming HC Japanese sushi restaurant in Alphabet City in New York, uh, which opened in May 2017. And also joined is the uh, Mayanoki's executive chef, Jeff Miller. The highly recognized Mayanoki is unique in many ways, in particular for its strong focus on sustainability. Sushi is becoming increasingly popular because um, it's just tasty and also for its healthy nature, but preservation of fish is a serious issue nowadays. So today we'll discuss how Mayonoki serves great sushi and tries to preserve ocean resources at the same time, and how uh, the passionate young Americans, entrepreneurs, decided to open a sushi restaurant, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan Needs is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. We appreciate a few feedback. And uh, let's start a conversation with the Mayonoki team. So, uh, yeah, David, TJ, Jeff, welcome to Japan Needs. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks. All right. So, um, first, let's talk about you guys' background. So, uh, where did you grow up and uh, what was your life before uh, opening Mayonoki? So, maybe, do you know, start with David? Sure. Uh, I grew up out on Long Island in New York <clears throat> um, before my Noki. Uh, I still work in technology as a day job, so that was my life before my Noki. Um, before starting my Noki, I just ate sushi, and now <laughs> I help to serve it or prepare it for people. Um, yeah, uh, I grew up near the water, and I think that may have provided some uh, interest in seafood um, and coming from an immigrant background we always had fresh food around so I think that was also a driver of like being interested in the restaurant industry mm. and I also heard that you were uh, as a part-time job like when you were much younger you were on the boat and uh, you were almost struck by lightning within 500 yards of fishing boat and yeah. I heard that, that changed your perception of sushi uh, well, it was, a, it was a charter fishing boat, so we would take groups of people out to kind of recreational fish. Um, and there was one particular storm that we didn't get 
into the port fast enough. Um, but I think just in general, being out there, you kind of just see how amazing Mother Nature can be. Mm. So that's kind of how it changed my perspective. Right. Okay. Um, and uh, what about you, TJ? I am from Westchester, New York, originally. Um, I've been working in restaurants in New York City for the last over a decade or so. Oh, by the way, listeners, uh, TJ is the beverage director of Marion Yes, too. indeed. Uh, I like to drink. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I grew up in Westchester. My father owned a bagel store in Westchester, so I grew up around the food business. And uh, in college, I got my first wine buying job at an Italian restaurant and kind of never looked back. Wow. Okay. Um, the Jeff? Hey. Uh, I grew up in Grass Valley, California, in the Sierra foothills. Uh, I started making sushi while I was going to school at the University of Florida. Mm, but the, how, how did it happen, though? <laughs> <laughs> you cannot just start making sushi. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, I, a few days after I moved to Gainesville, which is where the university is, I, uh, I walked into what I had heard was the best sushi restaurant there. I needed a job, and I thought it would be... I love to eat sushi. I had wanted to learn to make sushi for a while. Uh, I thought it would be a fun way to pay the bills. And I walked in, and I, I, had, I, had, I had no business getting a job there, but the chef who was working that day, uh, he was expecting a friend of the owner uh, to be coming in looking for a job, and so he thought that I was that friend, and okay. he thought that he had to hire me. What happened to the other guy? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. I, I don't know. But, um, yeah, so I, wa I walked in and I had printed out 20 resumes that day. I was going to go all over town. I had, um, and I didn't, I didn't need a single one because I walked in and met the chef. His name is Tun. Uh, and he just gave me the paperwork. Wow. I, I thought, man, Gainesville really must need workers. <laughs> he didn't tell me that story for about two years. Mm. Uh, I didn't I didn't know it but anyway that's how I got the job there wow. I worked my way up in that restaurant for five years it's called Dragonfly uh, and then I spent five years uh, with another company in Texas uh, and then I came up here in November mm. so, um, so before you got that job you used to eat a lot of sushi and you knew how to make yeah. sushi <laughs> yeah um, I ate a lot of sushi uh, in, in California and I tried making it at home a few times and so that gave me like having made it at home three or four times really just avocado rolls mm. that gave me wh what I thought was enough confidence to to walk into a restaurant and ask mm. for a job I think if I had known how much I didn't know and how much work was ahead of me at that time I wouldn't have I wouldn't have considered it but I was so dumb, I had no idea. Yeah, that's the oh, power of you, like, Yeah, right? it was great, it was great. Uh, yeah, it's a lesson, right? We, we can just maybe forget about anything, how much you don't know, and then start doing it. Oh, exactly, right? just, just bit by bit. So yeah, that was 11 years ago. Mm, wow, congratulations. Uh, thank you. Um, so that's interesting because I think a lot of, nowadays a lot of people want to study sushi and their schools, but it sounds like you learned in a very traditional way at the restaurant. I, I learned in a, I learned, in, to me, what's um, becoming an, an American traditional way. It's not the, it, I didn't learn in the traditional Japanese way of being a, like one chef's apprentice. I worked in larger, higher volume restaurants, which is, I mean, that's the majority of, of sushi in this country. I mm. uh, started out with lots of rolls and then slowly got more into the craft and more into the history of it. and, and um, uh, and over over time, yeah, it, it does become an obsession. But yeah, that's. Mm, hey, so you came a long way. Your sushi looks very beautiful. So amazing. Uh, thank you. Have you seen it? Yeah, oh. in pictures. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> been to so your restaurant sweet. yet. So, um, okay. But how do you guys meet each other? Including a uh, Josh, who is another owner. Mm -hmm. um, so you yeah. maybe David, you can talk about uh, Josh. Uh, sure. Who's not here today? But yes. Yeah. The uh, Josh Eric is another of the the partners. Um, he and I go back to college. We were friends um, from our college days and just remained friends. We also ate a lot of sushi. Um, I think like all of us, <clears throat> uh, and that's how we became friends initially with um, a chef who we were 
starting the pop-up when we first started. And I think actually Josh found TJ yeah. um, and called TJ on the phone and said, hey, we want to serve some sushi. Are Correct. you interested? And For sure. Them? Yeah, I was at uh, Brooklyn Enology. I was uh, oh. running that winery that was in Williamsburg for, mm-hmm. for a long time. And we used to do all kinds of events, all kinds of you know chef pop-ups and that kind of mm. thing. And Dave and Josh reached out to me um, to you know start doing these Mayanoki pop-ups mm. at the at the winery, and became fast friends and just you know kept doing it for I think five years. We were doing it for, uh-huh. uh, and the, just kept the steam rolling, kept the ball rolling, and uh, and here we are today. Mm, right. And then uh, where's uh, Jeff in the picture? Um, you, so you, you yeah, part. so we, as we were kind of experimenting um, and learning about serving sushi and becoming sustainable, um, we kind of always plotted like what's our next kind of step, um, because we were operating out of BOE for so long. We wanted to find a place that was uh, at least a month long pop up, um, and then the, we ended up taking over a restaurant on Clinton Street. And the chef there actually put us in touch with Jeff, um, who I think had heard of Mainoki before we kind of connected. Yeah, it's a, I got into the sustainable side of sushi when I uh, started ordering fish for the company I was working for in Texas. Mm, that's Uchi, uh, right? Uh, yeah, oh, uh, Uchi, beard, and, Uchi and Uchiko, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, uh, and yeah, the, once you get into sustainable sushi, which really just means you're not ordering fish that are going extinct or that are polluting the waters. Anyway, um, we'll save that. Uh, <laughs> one, so once, once you get into that world, it's, it's a pretty small world, sustainable sushi in this country. So I had read about a couple of restaurants on the West Coast, like Bamboo in Portland, um, and I'd read about this pop-up that was happening off and on in, um, in New York. Mm, right, but in the first place, though, uh, I think a question to David, but why did you decide to open a sustainable sushi restaurant? It's, it's a big commitment. And you started uh, a pop-up at your home, right? Basically. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> as I mentioned, Josh and I were going to a restaurant um, in Tribeca for a few years and became really friend, uh, really good friends with the chef. Um, when that place closed down, um, we had an idea of trying to get the chef into his own restaurant and that's kind of how the pop-up started so we originally just started asking him to come to our apartments and serving you know small amounts of people four six eight people friends and family um and we figured that if we can get seven eight ten people in our apartment can we get them can we get ten people outside of our apartment to show up for sushi um we didn't start with the intention of being sustainable we probably operated for like six or eight months maybe yeah maybe not that long let's say six months before we realized um when we were buying the fish um, and learning about it, we were just realizing how much of an environmental impact um, farm salmon in particular had because that was the one that I personally loved at the time and then just realizing that the way that you, when you look at the fish, you see these large you know, stripes of fat in it, it's because the fish can't swim in the pens and they're full of antibiotics and chemicals to keep them alive basically. Um, and we just realized that this doesn't this doesn't align with our principles. So if we're not willing to eat the fish, we're not going to serve it to people. Um, and then slowly we just started figuring out. We didn't know if it was possible to be a sustainable sushi restaurant because we hadn't known many people that were doing it or anybody personally that was doing it. So we just slowly kind of experimented with what we can serve and you know what are better options and doing a lot of research. Mm, okay. Um, so yeah, I'm going to get get into that details. Uh, shortly but uh let's just talk quickly about the pop-ups so pop-ups uses friends and family and expanded to broken analogy and uh who came to those events i don't know who did come. <laughs> <laughs> so, um well i think in the beginning like the first night that we held our event it was still a lot of friends and family i think we had 20 people that yeah, first night it was a larger one yeah completely different format uh we had like family style platter mm-hmm. kind of sushi a lot of sashimi actually not even sushi um and honestly it's it's always some, from the beginning it's kind of been word of mouth um we started building up an email list of people we were doing some promotional stuff working with some you know uh, third-party vendors for advertising on you know uh dating sites or like you know what to do in Mm. for your birthday or stuff like that um but we just kept adding people to our newsletter and we were able able to kind of always fill the seats i think it was partly because we were only operating once a month two days out of the month so and there was only 
18 or 16 or 20 seats available. So people would try to purchase and then it would be sold out within, a, you know, let's say an hour or two. Wow. So people were always kind of look on the lookout for the next event. Mm. Um, but very quickly, I mean, it was really just stranger. I mean, it wasn't anybody that we knew personally that was showing up. It was mm. just people that were interested in, I think, you know, pop-ups in general, um, something that's a little more exclusive. Um, and then sushi, you know, everybody kind of loves sushi. So putting those two things together, I think, mm. intrigued a lot of people. Right. And then Having the uh, the guests at Brooklyn Analogy yeah. kind of see the space transformed into a sushi sushi restaurant once mm. a month. I was really excited for exciting for them. So they constantly were like, "What's going on over there?" And they wanted to get involved. So <laughs> it just kind of kept growing in that mm. way, and the wait list kept growing and. and and now we have our own brick and mortar restaurant after all these years. So. Right, well, it's a very sustainable way to grow business Organic too. Organic growth, yeah, right. sure. <laughs> right. Uh, so let's talk about uh, Mayonoki. So, what's the meaning of Mayonoki? Uh, That's we, a great question. <laughs> uh, Josh and I kind of made it up. Uh, it doesn't really have any meaning. I mean, the the kind of approach that we take to it now is there was really no roadmap for us to follow, so we just kind of had to figure out what Mayanoki was and we were watching a movie at we literally just put two words together and during the credits and that's kind of the backstory. Okay. So it's a name. <laughs> but profound. we have been yeah. told by our Japanese guests mm. that yes. if you break it down and you obviously correct me if I'm wrong, but Maya means in front of and Noki means tree. So in front of the tree we'll mm. go with. Uh, and we do have a garden right next door, one of those mm. community gardeners with uh, next to the restaurant. Right. So so we'll go with that. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. Actually, I looked up and then there's uh, the bread nut. It's like a Maya tree, actually. Oh, wow. Mm. Yeah. So it's interesting. I Excellent. thought it was some uh, <laughs> mysterious reason, but <laughs> I like that. <laughs> okay. So, um, yeah. By the way, sushi is very traditional um, oriented, traditional oriented genre by Japanese cuisine. So what do you feel about being American, you know, owning and wanting cooking sushi? I mean, I'll let these guys answer as well, but for me personally, I think it's um, making it American. <laughs> you know, we're taking actually the concept that's very Japanese of seeing something and then adopting it and, and kind of making it your own. Um, and I think it's just time where we don't need to replicate the sushi that's going on in Japan in the U.S. We can make American sushi in the U.S. and use local ingredients and still honor and respect the tradition, but there's no reason to be flying in fish from halfway around the world mm. when we have great seafood here. He's, he said he was going to let me answer, and then he took my answer. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so now, now I don't have much to say other than I agree with him wholeheartedly. Well, no, but I mean, so th I think the one thing for me, I, I'm, I'm biased as well, but like going to other sushi restaurants, Jeff's food is, I mean, you taste Texas in it. Like their flavor profiles, like the tomatillo salsa, like there, there are elements that are uniquely American, not just from the fish, but from all the other ingredients that I think really, you know, takes that principle to heart. And you're getting flavor profiles that are American sushi that I don't, I've never had in any other sushi omakase in the city. So yeah, yeah. plus New York wine. So I, I think, um, like we all have so it's impossible not to respect the Japanese tradition when it comes to when it comes to everything Japanese but sushi is what we're talking about um, and, and from for me and and I think for us the the best way to to show that respect is not to try to recreate the authentic Japanese experience because none of us is Japanese um, it's to learn as much about it understand the tradition and then adapt it to where we are and what we have available um, and and for me if, if I were to try to use exclusively Japanese fish and describe them in Japanese terms it it would feel like I was putting on a show um, so yeah I'm, I'm trying to create something more more genuine and authentic for myself mm. Right, that's exciting. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> There's something kind of inherently rebellious about being a sustainable sushi restaurant, kind of going against the grain and, and standing out from, from other places. And, you know, I think these guys said it best, not trying to be something that we're not. We're, we're trying to be ourselves. We are New Yorkers. We're, mm. uh, you know, we're a New York sushi restaurant, focusing with, you know, on local wines, local species, and really not trying to be something else. Right, that's exciting. I think it's the reminds of... Um, me of, you know, Japanese sushi used to be 
by nature sustainable because only local fish. Yeah. But I think nowadays it's impossible to globalize the economy. And uh, also, I think it's very exciting that, you know, Japan, Japanese people really know for taking other cultures something mm-hmm. and make it <laughs> their own thing. So like, uh, you know, yakiniku from Korea, tempura from uh, mm-hmm. Portugal, that kind of thing. So Even, even the, the, like the, the earliest, the, the absolute origins of sushi aren't rooted in Japan. Uh, started out as a Korean fish preservation method and then moved right. up. Um, so yeah, it's just I, I, the idea of tradition gets stuck in people's heads, but mm. it's like, it's always evolving. Right, and, and I, also I, I want to be a part of that evolution. We want to be a part of evolving it into this country even further. Right, even the California rolls and yeah. dragon rolls. This it's really a progress to me. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people turn their noses up at it, but it's um, as long as I think as long as it's well made, it's uh, it's just its own genre. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it doesn't have to constantly be compared with right. edomai sushi. Yeah, and I think uh, the those rolls, creative rolls, democratized sushi to a lot of people, right? So I think there's uh, they should get a huge credit in the, the world of sushi. Yeah, I I spent years making rolls <laughs> I can't I can't speak I can't speak poorly of them at all a lot of a lot of cream cheese in my background wow <laughs> a lot of spicy mayo yeah, but, but this is you know it's, just because it's not familiar this makes sense right there's umami in it this combination really mm-hmm. is tasty so yeah I'm pretty open to those things <laughs> so okay so what's the concept of a mayonoki yeah I, I think that's kind of what we were just saying um you know, taking the, the principles, but applying our, you know, our own take on it. So whether it's using only American ingredients or serving only local wines um, and really just making people comfortable, right? I mean, yeah, I think in our space in particular, uh, having eight seats, you know, we're able to connect with guests um, a little bit easier than other restaurants may. Uh, Jeff and my wife, Brianna, who runs the front of the house, are able Mm. to uh, get a lot of this information across to guests that are curious, uh, that sometimes don't uh, have a a, comprehensive understanding about where these species are coming from and how they are being overfished and uh, how traditional uh, seafood restaurants are are not supporting protective environmental habits. So... Uh, us being able to relay that information to the guest, I think, is just as important mm. for our experience as you know the food itself. Right. And, and I think you know Jeff is very willing to kind of talk with folks and, and Brianna as well. Um, I think it's a little disarming because sometimes I think you go into a sushi restaurant and people are very intimidated. Um, <laughs> they feel like they can't ask questions or um, have a conversation and. You know, when we go in, we're always having a conversation with the chef, and we know that they want to have a conversation, but it's always hard to kind of break that ice initially. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think for us, it's just even if people come in not thinking or caring about sustainability, even if we just put one thought in their mind of thinking of what to order next time, um, I think that would be a goal, you know, Mm -hmm. just so that they even think about it the next time that they're in another restaurant. Right. So that eight-seat sitting is pretty typical I think in Japan mm-hmm. so because of the communication and everybody has like your favorite coffee shop the same way you have favorite uh, sushi place so. Definitely. Right. yeah um, so where do you source um, sustainable fish from we we use four or five companies and some of these companies are just one man operations but um, so at the top of our list of priorities when we're sourcing fishes is sustainability and from there uh, as as locally as we can source um, so for that we we depend pretty pretty heavily on Greenpoint fish and lobster which is a local uh, seafood company and they specialize in sustainable seafood uh, and they're it's a smaller company so for us it's great because to do what we do requires a lot of communication, a lot of conversations about everything that we're bringing in. Uh, and even though we're a tiny restaurant, they're willing to take the time to do that with us. So that's that's the biggest one. And then we have, uh, we work with a couple national distributors. Um, and then, com- like, I, like I said before, small companies, as small as uh, one in Newburgh, New York, called Eco Shrimp Garden. 
run by this wonderful Brazilian gentleman named John Claude, who's all, all he's doing is farming one species of shrimp mm. in the basement of what used to be a mattress factory up there. Inland recirculating tanks is sustainable, as sustainable as an operation can be, and the shrimp are outstanding. Um, so that's, I guess, kind of a quick overview. But it's, mm. it's, uh, it's really easy, actually, to source, to source sustainably. Wow, really? And it, it wasn't... When, when I first came up here... It was more difficult for a number of reasons, but um, the one of the mistakes that I was making early on was was thinking about what a more traditional sushi menu looks like, and then trying to trying to find sustainable replacements mm. for certain species. and And that's when I was having more trouble filling filling a menu. Um, the mistake that I was making was I was doing that rather than just looking at what was abundant and available because there's so much out there mm. um, so so once you start doing that once you once you start to understand how much sustainable fish exists mm. um, it, it becomes really really easy to mm. fill a menu now 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 I'm having to make decisions every day about what to leave off what not to order because there's too much mm, so, wow. so you can find those um um, abundant species from educated by distributors or fishermen. Yeah, I I, I put I put most of the the responsibility on myself first mm. for learning what what's out there, what's what's in season, um, learning how learning about different catch methods mm. and farming methods, and then from there seeing seeing what what different companies are carrying. So. So by, by the time I'm looking at a product list, I don't have to I don't have to ask questions about every single thing that's there. Mm. Uh, I can I can be pretty sure that I'm what I'm ordering is sustainable, and then from there from there have an educated conversation with with the company. Right. Wow. I didn't know that this is so easy. So. so yeah. I mean, I think it's easy because Jeff. The one really important point is that he's willing to work with anything that's available. Mm. Oftentimes, you go into many sushi restaurants and there's pieces that have to be on the menu, right? There's always unagi. There's always bluefin. There's always, you know, certain fish that are hamachi that the reason they're not those fish in particular are not sustainable because you need them all the time year mm. round. If you work with the seasons and you're willing to adapt to what's available, then it can become very easy. Yeah, and and I, I guess it's worth noting that it's it's easy now because I've been I've been in this business for a while and I've I spent the last several years doing pretty rigorous research on on what's available and um and what's sustainable. Mm, right. It maybe it just sounds like you know it used to be in terms of wine that people order Chardonnay or Cabernet Sauvignon mm-hmm. now there's after all the education of wine specialists like you DJ I think people started to learn like what's this uh, Bulgarian wine and something like that so is this the beginning of time to educate people in terms of sustainable sushi now which I think you're leading yeah one one of the um, one of the things that I guess we'll call it a roadblock um, when it comes to explaining American seafood or defending American seafood compared with Japanese caught fish is um, how it's handled, how it's, how it's caught because the, we have amazing, amazing fish all over the country. Um, what differentiates a lot of it from the Japanese product is how it's, how it's caught, how it's, handled and stored after it's caught because the, the Japanese tradition is it's uh, it goes back so far um, and how you handle a fish after it's caught makes a world of difference mm. well, whether the, you're, the moment it's caught the moment yeah. it's caught um, uh, and then the moment it's killed whether you're bleeding it whether you're performing Ike Jime mm. uh, so that it doesn't go as intensely into rigor mortis um so the reason I brought this up is because we're we are educating, we're we're educating our guests. But there's another another uh, facet of this which is uh, really important to the future of American sushi, uh, and that's educating 
it's, this sounds kind of arrogant, but educating the um, seafood companies and fishermen mm. and everybody in that in that um, in that world because there's not not only is there a difference in how in, in often how how people in this country are handling fish, but there are also so many fish that go overlooked because for generations it's been thought of as bait fish. Um, take something like kohata, for example, which is a shad. In, in Japan, it's prized for sushi. Mm-hmm. It's one of the most traditional fish out there. Um, in this country, it never makes it inland because they, they just use it as bait. They don't know how to, they don't know how to transport it properly so that it stays in good condition, mm. um, which, I mean, all, all it would take if, if anyone is listening who has access to shad (laughs) is storing it in ice water and shipping it to 620 East 6th Street. Mm. Right. Well, it's, I love shiny sushi, you know, shiny fish mackerel. It's almost, almost impossible to find them in this country because they're so wasted. Yeah. um, Yeah. They, they just end up using them as bait. But they're mm. out there. It's not like it's not like they're not out there. Mm. Education. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it's. I mean, it's educating them about you know how to preserve it. But it's also that there can be an industry, right? There can be a market for these fish, right. and there are people that are willing to perhaps pay a little bit more for well-preserved fish, well-handled fish, over just throw it in a bucket, throw it in you know mm. storage, and then just ship it off, and it gets all busted. And and, right. I, and I think in in ten years this is going to be old news because there is a market for it mm. and it's it's only growing right and, and, that, and that fish is out there and a famous story is uh, the toro the most expensive tuna piece used to be thrown out yep. because it's, it's too fatty food. for japanese people yeah. and then they realized oh it sells in the market so mm-hmm. the same thing happened become a diamond <laughs> so so even even last night um and this is why i mentioned kohata the shad even last night i was talking to a friend who has done a lot of fishing off the coast of florida and and I um, I brought it up because it's it's my favorite fish for sushi, and he he was unfamiliar with it. And then when I when I said its English name, he looked stunned, and he pulled up a picture of it on his phone. And he said, "This?" I was like, "Yeah, that's shad." And he's like, <laughs> "I I could I could go out and and throw out a net right now and catch like twenty pounds of these wow. in five minutes." <laughs> so I, I yeah anyway, it's out there. Right. So you made a deal. <laughs> Sadly, no. Right. So that's wonderful. So, um, and I think uh, most of us are familiar with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch mm-hmm. as uh, the criterion for sustainable fish. But on your website, uh, you put the logo of the James Beard Foundation Smart Catch and uh, Billion Oyster Project. So uh, what are they and uh, how you are involved in those two organizations' uh, programs? Yeah, they're great organizations. Uh, the Billion Oyster Project, which is one of my favorites, is actually an organization that is looking to reintroduce oysters to the New York Harbor um, for water filtering purposes. Uh, so they actually collect oyster shells from restaurants that mm. have shucked the oyster. So every oyster that you eat, we save the shell, and they come around and they pick them up, and they reintroduce them to the polluted waters, and they grow new oysters inside of the shell. Mm. Uh, so they say that up to 20 new oysters can be grown out of each shell from every oyster wow. that we eat. Uh, so it's a great project. Uh, they have uh, outposts all over uh, the Brooklyn Navy Yard. I've, I've personally seen uh, a great transformation. That mm. that, you know, that Those oyster shells are good nests for new oysters. Yeah, They absolutely. like living there, right? Totally. Um, and it's amazing to see what happens when you start introducing um, you know, life back to these polluted waters. All of a sudden, now you're seeing seagulls and you see, you know, all of this other life come mm. back uh, simply because of the oyster. And, uh, you know, they have they serve other purposes as well. Uh, there's a concept called oyster texture where they actually uh, build kind of oyster reefs to, to help um, prevent storm surge and things like that. So it has, a, a, you know, a big impact mm. on, on the environment. Uh, James Beard Smart Catch is also a really uh, great uh, organization. They are basically working with chefs to uh, kind of vet their products that they're serving, uh, in order to you know provide information and certification, so that the guest can can make informed choices, mm. essentially. Right. Um, so you know there are leaders within that organization where and and Jeff can tell you it's pretty intense scrutiny, if I'm not mistaken. 
where they yeah, go through. It's, it's just a lot of time spent filling out forms. selecting a fish. I think uh, the smart catch is based on the Monterey Aquarium's seafood watch. Yeah. And then once you get certification, you can be proud. So customer can feel... Yeah, they can yeah, feel they, safe. They, they use, they, they use a, a, a few different... Um, they use the seafood watch as well as a few different other resources. Okay. Right. And I think it started last year, right? The program... I think 2000, yeah, 17, early 2016. Right. Yeah. So it's pretty yeah. new, but it's a silver lining for the whole industry. Right. Um, okay, so uh, maybe uh, you can give us some examples of uh, sustainable fish. Abundant. Oh, boy, I would be delighted. <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> we have plenty let of me, time. Let me, let me take <laughs> you back to day one. Oh, um, so one of, one of our favorite fish to talk about and to serve as sushi is bluefish. Mm. Uh, and I can't tell you how many times I've said, here's some bluefish, and gotten any number of either weird looks or a scoff or really? <laughs> Pure shock. Um, and um, yeah, anyway, so, so bluefish is so abundant on the East Coast and has a, a really rich history and a really rich culinary history uh, on the, in the Northeast, um, but because it's a little bit more, a little bit more oily, mm. and which means it breaks down a little faster. Uh, it's over the years developed a uh, an undeserved bad reputation because if you're not if you're not gonna, if you're not handling it right, if you're not storing it right, um, it will after several days become an unpleasant fish. Mm. So a lot of people who fish and catch it don't, they, they just throw it back. They, they would never consider eating it, let alone bringing it home. Um, so when, when we serve it as, as sushi, it surprises a lot of people because if you handle it properly and you're serving it fresh, um, it's, it's very mild, but it's also fatty and rich. Um, but then beca because it is a little more oily like a mackerel, it takes really well to curing the way that you would cure like shime saba. Mm. Uh, so a little salt, a little vinegar, uh, and all of a sudden you have a much more complex piece that tastes more like traditional sushi, but it's made with bluefish. Mm. Uh, so that's that's a good example. Um, lionfish is uh, one that we serve whenever we can. We had it on most of this past week, coming out of Tarpon Springs, Florida. Um, lionfish is... It's great sushi. It's it's white white meat fish, so very mild flavor. Everyone likes it, mm. um, but more importantly, it's it's a very invasive species, mm. not native not native to the Gulf where it's taken over, all the way down to the Caribbean. Uh, it's native to the Western Pacific, more tropical waters. Uh, but yeah, so down down around Florida, they've just taken over for the last couple of decades because. They've, the theory is that because they're a popular aquarium fish, um, somebody at some point just didn't didn't want to kill it. Maybe it got too big for their aquarium, mm -hmm. just tossed it in the ocean. Maybe this happened a couple of times. And then because there's no natural predators for these guys down there, they've just taken over. Mm. And they're, they reproduce quickly. They eat a lot. So they're, they're forcing out a lot of... Uh, a lot of native species. So yeah, it's important to eat them as mm. much as we can all the time. They are a little uh, tougher to come by because they have uh, a bunch of poisonous spines that mm. makes them hard to hard to work with. But once you get once you break through those, you get some really good sushi meat. Um, and they're harder to catch, right? So. Oh, because it's spiny. Or Spi yeah. So mo most of them are <laughs> most of them are spear caught. Mm. Um, but yeah, we. That, that's that's two examples. I could mm. I could talk a lot about other fish that uh, we serve, but I'm really willing to try. That. <laughs> well, I think yeah. one other one too um, that goes with Billion Oyster Projects is just oysters and shellfish, um, which is also typically traditional. But uh, as TJ mentioned before, improve the environment so they're actually restoring mm. even beyond just sustaining, right? Um, so it's always interesting to see someone who is kind of a little standoffish when it comes to eating shellfish as sushi and um, when they try it and they're just like oh wow this is great and 
I think it's just an important one as well. Nice. One of my favorites is definitely Porgy. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. Uh, One always uh, excites me to see. Mm. Um, You know, traditionally, Porgy is looked at as trash fish or, um, you know, is just thrown overboard and kind of caught by accident. Mm. Uh, And we happen to love it. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, it it is uh, related to Madai. Madai is similar to the sea bream. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. fish in Japan. Exactly. So when you're thrown overboard. when, when When Paul Greenberg was in the restaurant, uh, a few months back, he was talking about just essentially rebranding. Paul Greenberg is a uh, seafood writer. Um, he was he was talking about re- if you can rebrand a fish, and you can rebrand a fish. Absolutely. Uh, he was talking about re- rebranding it as like um, New York Madai or East Coast Madai or something mm. like that. Yeah, sounds um, sounds better already. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, but but you know, when, once you once you actually. Once you actually feed people this fish, they 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 want more. Mm, right. So, um, oh, I, I'm hungry now. <laughs> hearing it, um, economically speaking, um, how great is the benefit of using sustainable fish? Don't don't tell them. <laughs> don't. It's it's not good at all. Don't try it. I mean, you know that one best. So. No. Um, yeah, it's 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 good actually, and I. I said that as a joke. I encourage many more people to try serving sustainable fish mm. because you should be. Um, but man, you know, I've actually I've I've have shown past coworkers, like past fellow sushi chefs, invoices uh, of of orders that we receive, and they're blown away because of. How how much money you can save when you're not importing fish mm. from when you're not importing all your fish from Japan, mm-hmm. um, you know you're at there are times you're saving seventy five percent. Right, of course, because I heard uh, like the Boston tuna is shipped to Tsukiji to raise the price and ship back to yeah. New York, and so of course, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh, um, mackerel, which I, I serve as much mackerel as I can because I love it. Mackerel, if you're getting it from Japan, you're paying like $15, $17 a pound for it. Um, when, I, when I'm getting it from Massachusetts, it's a, it's $1.95. Wow. Amazing. And the inverse happens, I think, also with farmed species. We do serve some, uh, some really heavily vetted farmed species at the restaurant. Uh, and those can typically be a little bit pricier because the the farms are doing it correctly and they're spending a little bit more money on feed and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas like a... Um, you know, high density salmon farm that doesn't really care is always going to be cheaper. Mm, yeah. Right. Okay. So a lot of uh, benefits from sustainable being sustainable. I think, I think everybody should start. In my <laughs> yeah, opinion. Yeah, we, we right? agree. Yeah. Okay. So let's take a quick break here, and we, when we come back, we'll talk about Mayanoki's my, my, my unique menu. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. 
welcome back. You're listening to Japanese podcasting live from studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Aki Katema, and my guests today are David Tochano and、uh, TJ Provenzano,、uh, who are the co owners of Mayonoki, a charming eight seat Japanese sushi restaurant in Alphabet City, New York,、uh, which opened in May 2017. And also here、uh, with us is the executive chef,、uh, Jeff Millers. Um, so, what kind of menu、uh, do you offer at the Mayonoki? Jeff?、Uh, I guess I can talk about that. Yeah. Seafood, mostly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, so, it's, it's omakase only. So,、um, yeah, it's typically in, in the ballpark of 15 courses. That can vary a little bit.、Uh, nigiri heavy, normally、mm. 80%. Just straight nigiri.、Mm. So, nigiri versus rolls.、Uh, yeah, rolls or sashimi.、Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I try to work in some plated dishes as well to keep it interesting for myself and、mm. break up the monotony a little bit for the. <laughs> not monotony, but like, you know, if you're eating 15 pieces of sushi in a row,、mm. it, it can be kind of rhythmic and put you to sleep.、Um, so, yeah. yeah. So, And I, I think it's、uh, only $95, which is. Yeah, I like, I like that you put only、yeah, on, in front、too. of $95.、Well, only, only in this city are, are people saying only $95 for sushi, <laughs> I and I love that. <laughs> But it's becoming $250、yeah. normal, and the same 15 you know,、yeah. pieces. And it's, it's becoming. A little, maybe thanks to the economy, but you know, sushi has to be a little more approachable. Yeah, I mean, I almost feel like it's, we're reaching like, the, the, the value that people perceive that they need to provide is like you have to be as Japanese as possible. So, a lot of these, the most recent restaurants, that's like all the wood is from Japan, all of the everything is from Japan. It's like, so you're, you're paying for that, right? And then if you're going into a, a very large、um, space, the rent is always going to be high in New York. So, There's a lot of fixed cost just to begin with trying to operate a restaurant.、Um, and I think, you know, we've benefited from the fact that we weren't trying to replicate that. We're trying to do our own thing. And we always, the, the technology experimentation background that Josh and I had, were literally from the, the reason we did a pop up was because we knew we couldn't open up a restaurant. So, how can we do this as cheaply and, and quickly and possible just to see if we can be successful? And we've kind of carried that forward. And I think, you know, You see that the opposite end of that on some of the restaurants that are opening up. It's like, how much money can we spend? How big can we make this? How, you know, how much stuff from Japan?、Mm. So you have to have a $300 omakase just to walk in the door to, to pay your bills.、Mm. Right. So again, I think $95, or including all those costs associated with this city. And, and I, <laughs> I, think it, I think it's important also to be. We're, we're calling $95 approachable, and I think that's fair.、Uh, but th- it's, it's so important to be approachable doing what we're doing, doing something different,、um, so, that it's, so that we can get as many guests in the restaurant as possible. And we're, we're definitely, you know, every day, every day we have to prove ourselves and prove that a, a sustainable sushi restaurant is a viable thing.、Uh, and I, I, think, I think long ago we proved that. But.、Uh, It really, yeah, I think it doesn't, sushi doesn't just need to be a special occasion,、mm. uh, especially if we're doing sustainable sushi. The way to make an impact with, the way to really make an impact with、um, sustainable seafood is to serve as much of it as possible and, and slowly change people's tastes and expectations.、Mm. Right. Well, the speaking of、uh, taste,、um, What do you serve traditional sushi? I heard that、uh, the menu is innovative too. Like you throw in some、uh, Texas flavor. <laughs> or what else do you do for some、uh, kind of improvement or innovative, creative? Oh, man.、Um, well, I, I, we, we do incorporate a lot of traditional Japanese technique.、Um, the, the rice, for example, we're using a California grown、uh, koshi, hikari rice.、Um, But I, I, I try to make it as really as Japanese as I can because that's such a foundational、mm. element. I mean, making、um, by、uh, the vinegar, sugar, salt, that kind yeah, of combination. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think only, only in the last couple of weeks have I gotten a, the recipe really just right for the vinegar.、Mm. So I'm, I'm really happy with that. So, so the foundation is still、uh, rooted in, in Japanese flavor and then. Um, 
and then from there I, I build with, um, you know, I'm, I'm pulling from 11 years of sushi experience and then 32 years of eating experience. I've eaten a lot of, <laughs> I've eaten a lot of American food in my life. Um, but one, one of the, one of the more important words or important concepts uh, and ideas when I'm, when I'm building a menu is contrast. So a lot of, a lot of bright flavors, a lot of herbs, a lot of spices, um, and then you know, some more decadent rich bites here mm. and there. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I, spent, I spent a couple years in, in Houston and ate a lot of Vietnamese food down there. Uh, and that's, that's definitely crept into, mm. into the flavors that I incorporate, uh, which means a lot of lime juice and fish sauce mm. and mint and basil and cilantro and chilies, uh, thing, things like that. Uh, you know, I, I, I pull from anywhere that I think makes sense and tastes good. Mm, right. So it makes sense. That's the keyword. Yeah. Right. Wow. I can't wait to go. <laughs> Come on, see <laughs> your sushi. All right. So uh, let's now talk about uh, the beverage program at Mayonoki. So, uh, TJ, you, uh, you're in charge. So um, what kind of uh, beverage uh, items on the menu? So we have an all New York State wine list. Um, focusing on uh, kind of the major regions within New York, uh, the North Fork of Long Island, Finger Lakes, and Hudson Valley, three of my favorites. Uh, we carry beer and cider as well from New York State, and then we have sake as well, um, a lot of sake from Japan, and then uh, sake from Brooklyn as well. Mm, Brooklyn uh, Kura. Yes, right. indeed. Yeah. Big fans of Brooklyn Kura. We just did a, a great pairing event with them the other night. Uh, they, um, well, we have a lot in common. As, as a brand, you know, taking traditional Japanese um, art, basically, and, you know, focusing it with local ingredients and, mm. and trying to elevate and expand. Um, as far as the, the wines go, um, I've been working in the New York wine industry for a long time. Um, so we focus on smaller batch producers. Um, typically, I think everything under our, on our menu is, is about 5,000 cases or under, which is, is pretty small as far as wine production goes. Um, it's seasonal as well, so uh, for instance, in summertime right now, I have a, a little bit heavier North Fork Long Island selection, mm. which I think is just such an easy pairing with local seafood, with mm. seafood in general. Um, you know, obviously it's a beach culture, and mm. there is a lot of organic material in the soil, gives uh, the wines this kind of inherent uh, salinity uh, mm. that I think pairs really well, and you know, the pairing is a big part of what we're doing. I think it's probably my favorite part of the whole operation is being able to pair these wines mm. and, and these sakes the, with the fish. I, the New York wine, I think, um, I did some research before. So mm -hmm. to me, the taste of Long, Long Island wines and you know New York State wine in general tend to be between Europe and California. Mm -hmm. And then, which means it's not overly sweet, but mineral, lots of minerality. So it's really great with uh, seafood, yeah, naturally. Absolutely. And there's, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of differences between the the actual regions within New York. So the wines from the North Fork are very different than the wines from the Finger Lakes. Mm. Uh, the Finger Lakes are fed by these giant glacial lakes. There's like these microclimates, uh, you know, on all five of them. So the wines are a little bit different depending on which lake you're actually, mm. you know, on. And the varietals are different on Long Island. They tend to focus more on Bordeaux varietals. Um, Whereas upstate in the Finger Lakes, it's a little more Germanic or Alsatian. So mm. a lot of Riesling, a lot of Gewürztraminer, that kind of thing. Like they make great ones too. Absolutely. Yeah, some of the best in the world, mm. I think, really. Uh, so it's, you know, it, we've kind of looked at it as an experimentation. I mean, we've been doing it for about five years now. You know, when we were at Brooklyn Enology, we were pairing with all New York wines. And um, it just kind of stuck. It was something that... It kind of happened by accident, but when it when it happened, it just made perfect sense, and you know, it's something that we're really proud to represent. Mm. And, and I think just because TJ has been doing this so long and has relationships with so many local um, uh, producers, you're getting wines that you don't see in many other restaurants. You know, mm. whether it's Gewürztraminers demeanors or orange wines, like. I yeah. actually didn't like white wines before doing my milky, and TJ sure. introduced me to so many 
local New York wines where I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. And, we, you know, we, we sometimes have to tell customers, like, just give us a chance here yeah. and, like, let us try, you know, take take a taste or two. And then after they see how full-bodied a white wine can be or just, like, how dynamic an orange wine and how well it goes with sushi, you just, people are ordering, like, I need another glass. Can, do you guys sell this by the bottle? Yeah. <laughs> so it just, yeah, we, it really does go well with it. It does. And we do, you know, some more esoteric selections as well. You know, Dave mentioned orange wines, which has been, a, you know, a kind of a surprise hit for us and a great pairing with sushi. Mm. So some skin-fermented stuff. I personally love uh, cider as well with, with sushi. And, uh, you know, we make some great cider here in New mm. York. We have a lot of apples. So um, I always, we like to begin our pairing and our meal oftentimes with oysters and apples, which it doesn't really get more New York than mm, that. Right. Right. So right. Know, it's been a lot of fun. I actually had a conversation recently about orange wine with yeah. my Japanese friend. She's a chef. And uh, so she said, well, I can't eat sushi without orange wine because of the mummy. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah so extra fermentation flavor. Yeah, so and the funkiness for sure. So many people um, have mentioned that, you know, the sushi is great and the wine is great, but when they're put together, they're better than, mm. you know, individually. Yeah, I'd absolutely agree. Yeah. <laughs> right. sure. yeah, and also uh, I did some article about uh, New York State cider, mm-hmm. and I was surprised. It doesn't, it's it, pretty dry, right? Absolutely. More than you think. Yeah, I mean, that's a stylistic choice that, the, you know, um, each cider maker can, can make. And mm-hmm. oftentimes when they make the choice to make a drier style, I think it pairs easier with food um, and really kind of takes it to that next level where we're thinking about it as like a, well, um, a well-made wine mm-hmm. rather than, uh, you know, like you know something you get in a 12-ounce can at the grocery store. Right, yeah, yeah and also cider is, uh, in theory, the drier and higher alcohol. But its highest is like 8%. Yeah, it's about 8 9% at the highest, really. Right. Um, so. But oftentimes, that's a great aperitif, you know, having that lower alcohol mm. um, and, you know, focusing on, you know, the funkiness and the acidity that the apple can bring rather than the sugar, mm. I think makes a great kind of jump off. Right. Yeah, and it's it's this is a slight deviation from uh, the myonic thing. But do you work on a rooftop reds? That's another yeah. project. That is another maybe. project, absolutely. Yeah, uh, I'm a partner in that vineyard. Uh, it is the world's first rooftop vineyard. Um, we are in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, as I mentioned, with the outpost of the Billion Oyster Project, and uh, we grow grapes in container on the rooftop. Mm. So it's kind of uh, you know taking the next wave of urban agriculture you know, mm. focusing on you know what is possible in the beverage realm rather than just you know um, growing vegetables and mm. things like that so uh, it's a project that's about six years old now wow. um, the grapes are doing really well we're very excited we just hired a new general manager on the rooftop Clara Khan who's who's great and really gonna take this to the next level and we're uh, Opening a second location here wow. in Bushwick, actually. Wow! So, uh, what, what kind of grapes can you grow in the the city? <laughs> so, well, yeah, I mean, it's you know, it, it's been an experimentation for sure. We are rooftop reds, so we grow red varietals. Uh, Concord, right? Yeah. Oh wow! Well, no, we don't grow Concord <laughs> on the roof. Concord uh, will grow anywhere, though. We that could, could be like thirty percent alcohol. <laughs> yeah, right. We could put a Concord grapevine right on this table, and it would grow. Uh, but we on the rooftop, it's about a quarter acre. Uh, and we grow all uh, red Bordeaux varietals, so the traditional five mm. blending varietals, Petit Verdot, Malbec, uh, Cab Franc, Cab Sav, and Merlot. Mm. And we just had our first harvest last October, so all of that wine um, is resting at the moment, and mm. it should be available in about a year. And when it is, it will be the world's first Aye. wine made from rooftop grapes. Mm. So Bordeaux exciting. grapes go mm. well with the sushi, you think? You know, I'm not sure we will. Uh, We might, uh, you know, red wines are tough, I think, with sushi. Oftentimes, they can work, for sure. Uh, This will be a single barrel uh, red varietal wine, uh, and it will also be astronomically more expensive than I think we would like it to be to serve mm. at the restaurant uh, but we do you know we make as a, as a company we make other wines as well so we have a full line of whites and rosés mm. um, that we make from sourced fruit that we source from, from farmers uh, and that has had its presence on our Mayanoki mm. menu interesting yeah one time I had a tuna which is kind of bloody Akami mm-hmm. uh, with gamay, which I yeah. also think it's Gamay is the one that I'd go to for right. sure. Yeah, so. that kind of light, like almost Beaujolais style, like you know, acidic, mm-hmm. bright, fruit forward. 
right. they could work well with with a red meat tuna for sure. So more to pair with sushi. Yeah. Right. Okay. So um, so this is um, the back to Mayonoki. So what's the biggest challenge in running a sushi restaurant in New York City? Oh, the biggest. <laughs> there's, there's so many. <laughs> Uh, well, I, I, from our perspective, I think one, like I mentioned before, was, uh, you know, we were lucky to have met TJ from the beginning. Um, but I think, you know, without finding TJ, just with his experience helping to run the restaurant, and then, as I mentioned before, finding a chef that cares about, in our case, sustainability when it comes to sushi. Um, you know, we, we talk to a lot a lot of chefs, and um, they're, they just kind of look at us with glass glassed over eyes like what are you talking about why would you not serve bluefin tuna or you know all of these things um but from the operational day-to-day i'll let these guys answer um but yeah from from our perspective that's that and then you know everybody loves the department of health obviously um, <laughs> yeah they're great give well, them a shout out i uh yeah yeah i guess i'll agree with that i i i don't know I, the it's not well, that hard <laughs> I mean, so, it's, <laughs> so I guess maybe from the the other another aspect would be there's just so much competition, right? So I mean, just having people to uh, know that you exist, um, and there's so many restaurants that are trying to get on a handful of publications or you know outreach um, and to reach enough people to you know once people come into the restaurant, they love the experience and. You know, they often come back, they'll come back with another six people because of how, you know, intimate the restaurant is. Um, but I would say that's probably the, the biggest challenge yeah, there, for us is like exposure. There's, there's, there's plenty of competition, I guess, but we're doing something so different that uh, we're really, there's, there's not another restaurant like, like us in New York. So um, it's, it's easy to make an impact mm. doing that because there's, there's not really a reference point for what we're doing other than traditional sushi. Mm, So, yeah, we definitely stand out. And dietary restrictions. Uh. It's always a challenge. Uh, No, man, it's it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity for sure. Uh, But, you know, getting people kind of out of their comfort zone of tuna salmon yellowtail, tuna salmon yellowtail, Mm. um, you know, that sometimes can be a challenge to convince people that, you know, if they... um, We'll try some of these things that we've prepared. That it's going to be just as enjoyable. Hey, but but props to our our guests who have so many so many people have come in and seemed uncomfortable at first, but they power yeah. through. Oh, definitely. Mm. Um, yeah, we've we've had a collection of just amazing people come into the restaurant. Mm. Well, that's the nature of umakase, right? Because yeah. you are trusted. And yeah. omakase means leave it to you, mm-hmm. so you can serve the sustainable unknown fish to the customers. Yeah, I, I feel kind of you know I'm I'm not from New York and I feel kind of spoiled, um, like the cross section of of people who I get to see in the city are so um, fantastic because I mean the people who are going to go to a, a sustainable omakase restaurant tend to be all right people. So, <laughs> yeah. Right. But uh, who are your customers then? Oh, man. Um, it runs a gamut. I mean, we have pretty wide ranging demographics, you know, um, from, you know, college students that are studying environmental studies to, you know, the Wall Street types. I mean, we get it everywhere in between. And, and yeah, a, a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of young East Village crowd. Yeah. Uh, we've been developing some awesome regulars one couple who has been in i think 36 or 37 times mm-hmm. wow. since we opened um a lot of a lot of creative artistic minded people yep absolutely mm, maybe that's uh, your ambience um uh, like energy of the restaurant might be inviting those people yeah too. for sure right. uh, also there's uh, this this type of person doesn't really exist outside of New York or maybe LA, but uh, people who are just going to every omakase restaurant. <laughs> it's like this this is the new one. They got to check it off their list and move on to the next one. Mm. But you know, as these guys said, we get a lot of return guests. You know, once they come, you know, I think that has a lot to do with the ambiance, like you said, but also the fact that Jeff's menu is constantly mm. changing and evolving. They know that every time they come back, there's going to be some sort of surprise. Right. Well, that's working, right? The sustainable unknown fish 
inviting repeat customers that's really working so definitely yeah right. actually i think you you yeah. just brought up this is going back to a previous question the hardest part for me about running this restaurant is a menu that changes every day yeah. um when when you when you decide to be a sustainable restaurant you're uh to a certain extent throwing yourself at uh, on on the mercy of the seasons mm. and what what's available and what fishermen are catching, which from one day to the next it changes. Mm. Um, so that means I've got to be on my toes all the time. Right. It's, well, it's fun. It's fun most of the time. Mm. <laughs> well, that's the nature of a sushi tradition. So yeah, you yeah. Are the chef. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So what's your plan for the future? serve sushi to people mm. <laughs> and delicious wines uh yeah i mean i honestly right now i think we're just humbled that we were able to survive for a year in our more brick and mortar mm. um and to just continue that for as long as the city will allow us to do that um I, you know i think the ultimate goal is to, to kind of show other restaurants that we uh, all sushi restaurants could be sustainable mm. um you know there are definitely some differences to approach that you need to do um, but we can have an impact that will have, a, you know, a very material impact on the environment. Um, mm. The oceans are, I think, a lot more important than people understand. And, um, you know, being able to have an impact <clears throat> just from the, the each bite that you take, um, you know, if we can just impart that idea to, to folks, I think. And, you know, if people are going to other restaurants and, and talking with the sushi chefs there and asking them questions about sustainability, I think... Now that to me at least would be a goal. Mm, right, that's amazing. So I, I really think uh, you guys are doing amazing things. So thank you. Well, see, yeah, see, good luck. see what you say after you eat that. Okay, I'll <laughs> 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 see. Listen. Uh, so for our listeners, uh, what's your web address and social addresses? Uh, dot com. It's M A M A Y A N O K I, and then we're on Instagram for the most part. Um, and TJ's cell phone number is no. yeah. <laughs> it's out um, there. and then we're at 620 East 6th Street between avenues B and C so if you're in the neighborhood swing on by say hello yeah that's great alright so uh, so David, TJ, Jeff thank you for coming thank, thank you, you so much yeah, it was a lot of fun so listeners uh, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests please contact us at japanneeds at heritageradionetwork.org or akikukatema.com and Japan Needs is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So our engineer is David Tatashore, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.